Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to uh, another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined as always by my childhood friend Christopher Dow. Having a bob squash. And my adulthood friend Minty Booth. The plant seems interested in fruits. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Oh boy. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into the episode, we'd love to remind you of uh, the various other things that we are doing in uh, the world and in life. <laughs> Firstly, do please check out our YouTube channel. We've been populating it recently with Inky Dunk videos, which uh, stands for In Case You Didn't Know. And these are videos that me and Minty have been producing where we're doing runs of The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus in preparation for the final piece of DLC. Check them out, subscribe to the channel, share the videos, all that sort of stuff stuff. Also, we have a Patreon page. If you head over to patreon.com slash r3cents, you can find all manner of perks available, such as full bonus episodes, including our most recent full bonus episode, which is a companion piece to the latest regular bonus episode, all about Blue Fire. And the Patreon-exclusive bonus episode has uh, loads of additional content that we'd uh, we prepared to dive even deeper into the game and the uh, lineage and legacy of some of the gaming mechanics. It's really, really good. There's loads of other things available on Patreon, so head over there, check it out, and hopefully we'll see you on the Discord channel, which is one of the Patreon-exclusive perks. So, this week we are launching into our seventh favourite video games. Kicking us off, as we have been doing in this top ten, is Chris with his seventh favourite video game. But before we do that, you know what time it is. What time is it? Quiz time, mate. Oh. Following on from the final question of the 100 question box set that uh, ended in an unprecedented 50-50 draw. <laughs> <laughs> it's mad. It's mad. I initially came up with a tiebreaker question, but then I came up with a lot of ideas to take the quiz forward. So we're just going to plough ahead with just more questions and the points are going to go up. I'm excited. Now, I've been watching quite a lot of Richard Osman's House of Games. And and I tell you now that some of the rounds that I've prepared over the next few weeks are, I I would say, shameless rip-offs, but they're slightly shameful rip-offs because I'm admitting right at the top that I have stolen these. (laughs) Quiz! there's going to be five questions. So that means there's five points up for grabs okay. in just one week. I mean, I'm absolutely determined not to get a 50 all split again. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm, you know, there's going to be more points up to grab. Sometimes there might be more points. Sometimes there might be less. Now, the round is a version of Hose of Games, which is where, on Richard Osmond's House of Games, he'll remove one letter from the answer, which will be the name of something. Okay. And then give a clue to try and guess what that is. So, for example, Richard Osmond hosts a gardening daily quiz show where he douses the contestants in water. The answer would be, it's not House of Games, it's Hose of Games. Okay. Because we've removed the U. Clear? (laughs) Yeah, I got it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) These are all video games. So what games am I describing? Okay. Okay. 
A collection of beloved Nintendo characters duel it out for a prize of pulverised potatoes. Super Mash Brothers. Oh! That is correct. <laughs> Very good, oh, Minty. God. That noise I just made peaked my audio like higher than it's ever gone. <laughs> Very good. Question two. A TV alien from the 90s raises the bar in this dystopian biographical game. <sighs> I can think of some aliens, but that, that's not helping me at the moment. I think I'm going to have to time you both out. I think you are. I think it's a no-pointer. Yeah. The correct answer is Alf Life. Oh, I had Alf. Oh. <laughs> the first thing I thought of was Alf, and I couldn't, I couldn't put it to anything. Question three. A survival horror game where Noah is lost on his haunted boat. <laughs> uh, Alone in the Ark. Correct. Oh, well done, Minty. God. I'm not good at these. <laughs> Question four. A female archaeologist gets deep inside Mr. Brady and Mr. Selleck. <laughs> Lara Croft, Tom Raider. Tom Raider. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Minty, that is three points to Minty. Goodness me. Okay, final question. Question five. Let's see if Chris can get a consolation I, I don't know if I will, but I'm having a really nice time. <laughs> <laughs> these, are, these are good. <laughs> a team of drugged up chefs try to meet the pressures of service before they OD. Uh, over, over, no, overcoked? Yes! Is oh, that what it well is? Done. Well done. Oh, God. Well done, Chris. I, I was trying to like, sound it out in my head. Like, okay, where's, where's the letter go? Where's the one that's missing? Jesus. Well done. Well, congratulations, guys. That's three points to Minty and one point to oh. Chris. So the this, scores this now stand at 53 to 51. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it, Minty? That's your biggest ever lead. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Minty takes round one. Congratulations. So, what have we been playing this week? Now, as is tradition, let us hand over to Chris to tell us all about his last couple of gaming weeks. I have been playing my new PlayStation 5. And I I think in the last time we recorded a proper episode, I mentioned that I was waiting for it to be shipped, that I had managed to get an order, but I I hadn't been given any tracking yet. It was quite a slow process. But I've had, like you say, probably almost two weeks with it now. And I have a lot of thoughts, so bear with me. Like, hopefully, at least some of this is interesting because, as I was kind of like noting this stuff down, I was thinking this this is quite a quite a globule, quite quite a mush of, of things to try and try and get out of my head. So, firstly, a, a massive thank you to Georgia and my family who clubbed together to buy me the console as a birthday present. Uh, my birthday at the time of recording has not happened yet, but when this episode goes out, I will have had my birthday. When it was going to be shipped, Georgia told me that she would hide the console away if she, if it came when she was at home. And I informed her, no, I, sh- I shall not be waiting and you will not be doing that. <laughs> so yeah, as a result of that, I have played it for quite a bit. I'm really grateful because there's no way I could have stumped up the cash from the machine outright off my own back at the moment. Um, and it's a really nice gift in that it will be the thing that I use pretty much daily for the next six or seven years. So thank you to everyone. The console then, and, and today really I'm going to ignore the games entirely, mostly. <laughs> it's a really odd thing. Like, honestly, I, I still think even in person that the design is horrific. Uh, I, th- I think we talked about this at some point when it was first kind of shown off, that in person, you know, you can kind of offset that sort of monolithic design that it's got a little when it's when it's sat on its side. So I've gone for sort of the horizontal layout underneath my TV. 
but it's still not what I would call attractive <laughs> as, as consoles go. Like PlayStation machines have always had a their own sort of look, like a, a kind of utilitarian symmetry in, in their straight lines and quite harsh edges. And then they've always followed that design that when they have their slim revision, their, their kind of redone model a few years later, the edges sort of soften a bit. But this is just a strange thing. Like it's, it's, it's part organic, it's part sort of curves in that way, and also quite robotic, but just it's also over-designed. <laughs> like I, I was trying to imagine like, okay, we will inevitably get like a PlayStation 5 Slim in a few years. What is that going to look like? Are we going to have more of the stupid wings? Are we going to have less of the wings? <laughs> like, I, I don't know which way they can take this console to still fit in with the aesthetic they've started here. I think the Xbox Series X is very ugly, but in a different way. You know, it is just a big rectangle. <laughs> but I, I know which I'd feel more comfortable showcasing next to my TV. <laughs> so I'm quite grateful that I can get the PlayStation and just kind of push it into the gap in, in the unit that I've got underneath my, my screen. The, the device itself, though, and it is, it's a little tough to say this. I think it's very much a product that has had its final quality assurance passed during a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's some great changes from the PlayStation 4. I think in terms of software, segregating the media apps and games in your library is, is a godsend, like a really good change. But there's still loads of other choices with the UI that just have left me going, why are we still doing this? Like, Why are we still making these really simple mistakes? So the PlayStation Store is still quite unpleasant to use to actually browse through and find what is new, what's on sale, what's actually available. There's all sorts of like toggles and options you'd expect to be under certain menus that just aren't. So you kind of go, well, that logically would be under menu A, and then you don't find it until you get to menu C or D, which is just, you know, a strange way of designing it. Like creating your own media and captures and broadcasts is, is a big push for the platform because it's still got a share button like the PS4 did. But video and screenshots, when you take them, then get hidden in a folder that sits at the very end <laughs> of your games library. And I took a few screenshots in a game a few nights ago for the first time, like really using the photo mode in a game. And it took me five minutes of entering and exiting menus to actually find out where they'd gone <laughs> it's just it's, it's not it's not good design for that sort of thing and i hope a lot of these things will just get smoothed out over time the most frustrating one for me though is how the functions of the the playstation like the home button on the con on the pad have been switched inexplicably for the first time in about four generations of sony consoles <laughs> so the short press and long press on that playstation button it used to be on the PS4 and the PS3 and the Vita and the PSP. It used to be that if you held it down, you'd go back to the main screen. And if you tapped it, you'd get kind of the quick menu. And that's not the case anymore. It's the other way around. That I, I just can't believe there wasn't at least one designer on the team who didn't raise the possibility that 15 years of muscle memory may be a little tough to unlearn for people. <laughs> like again, really small niggle. It's not, not a big deal, but it's just... I would like that to be an option that you could just say, no, do it the other way, please. And, and that would be fine. There's also a few little hardware quirks as well that you don't expect from a new machine. And I think, again, comes from this idea that these have been made in kind of a bubble over the last year of production. That sometimes when you're playing a digital game, if you have a different disc in the drive, completely disconnected from what you're playing, about once an hour, the disc will just spin up to full speed for about 20 seconds for just no reason. <laughs> Like I, I thought it was a, could have been a bug with my machine, but it's widely reported across the web and kind of acknowledged that it's probably just a bug that will be ironed out in a future firmware. But again, it's just a surprise that it wasn't caught before the console kind of made it to market. Um, you know, all these things will smooth out, I'm sure, no doubt. But, you know, we are essentially almost six months into the launch of a console now. So it's it's not ideal for people to still have these little bugs, but 
you know, you, you can put up with them. What is really great though, because I have been really, really negative so far on all these little things, what's, what's really, really nice is the speed of it. Games boot up in seconds. It's got a weird activity card thing that means you can be in and playing a mission or challenging a game, you know, from a totally cold boot in about five seconds. It's, it's really fantastic. Jumping into a game like Spider-Man Remastered, for example, will take less than five seconds to be in the full open world fully loaded, which is significantly less time than it takes to boot up, for instance, an old PlayStation 4 game. Like I have a an arcade port of Puzzle Bobble I've been playing a bit as well. <laughs> and, and it just seems bananas that a sprawling 4K open world is rendered perfectly more quickly than essentially booting a 25-year-old ROM. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, they clearly have optimized things seriously in, in the, the inner tech of this machine. What's also been great as well, and this really benefits me because I have such a big physical library of PlayStation 4 games, is that the console has real tangible benefits because of the, the extra kind of horsepower that just makes PS4 games better. I'm really, really grateful that Sony went the route they did where essentially 99.9% of PlayStation 4 titles just run out of the box on the PS5 in much the same way as the DS would run on the 3DS or the PS1 would run on the PS2. It's, you know, the hardware is essentially baked into the machine, so it just works. And for the longest time, their messaging in kind of the run-up to release, it looked like they were just going to whiff this really simple thing because they weren't committing to say how it was going to work. They seem to be saying that maybe only select titles would work or the most popular titles or something else. But basically, if you stick a disc in or you re-download a digital game for your library, you're up and running and they, they run great. Like... Having that extra grunt means that games that used to struggle with frame rate are generally now locked to either 30 or 60 frames per second, depending on the code. Games that use adaptive resolutions generally will just lock at the maximum at all cases now. It means that certain games like Marvel Ultimate Alliance that I had on the PlayStation 4 and ran like an absolute dog, even on the PS4 Pro, it's, it's now a locked 60 frames a second. Feels great. Really, really good to play. Something like The Last Guardian is much, much smoother in its resolution mode because, again, that wasn't a consistent experience. But I think the the biggest bonus for me as well playing PS4 stuff on here is that the console is almost whisper quiet. And unless it is accessing the disc, you, you just don't know it's on. And that's a huge difference from my PlayStation 4 Pro, which I got at the launch of that console. And by you know the end of its life was essentially, it sounded like a Boeing was taking off. <laughs> Even after I cleaned the fans, it just, it, it was not a nice machine to use anymore. I really like the DualSense controller. I've got used to that pad. It's, it's kind of like a weightier version of the PS4 pad with a few extra bells and whistles that could have real application. Even if their usage at the moment is a bit threadbare. You know, the adaptive triggers, it's got you know, proper HD rumble style haptic feedback. It's got increased sensitivity in the touchpad. All really nice, good things. And it's just a shame that at the moment, the only game that really uses them in any meaningful way is probably Astro's Playroom. Astro's Playroom then, as, as the only game I really sort of go into much detail today, it's a very good platform game, as you mentioned before, Jonathan. Yeah, it really, really is. It's, it's also just a really lovely archival thing that celebrates, you know, Sony's entrance into the games industry back to the PlayStation 1 and then just follows through essentially their continued ascendancy to present day. And what I really like about that is how it doesn't shy away from the bits of PlayStation history that just weren't quite as successful. So a big draw for Astro's Playroom is, is being able to collect 3D models of PlayStation hardware. And all the obvious bits are there. So you've got consoles and their revisions, controllers, etc. But there's also love for the Vita. There's love for all the weird PlayStation Move editions that came out with the PS3. 
you, you can even collect the PSP GPS module that you can only get in Japan, I think. You can collect an <laughs> toy, like all the stuff that was not very good, but it's still part of that kind of history. And it's a real joy to, to have that kind of celebration of it all. I think it is the best use of, of several bits of the DualSense controller. Uh, like I mentioned, the, the haptic feedback is incredible. As you're walking over any piece of terrain, you're given a level of feedback you just don't expect in games normally. But it feels so natural to the point that when I was playing another game directly afterwards, I had to check I haven't I hadn't turned off vibration <laughs> because it was just that there wasn't the same feedback there. So that is what's going to be an issue. Like if a developer uses it well, it's going to be fantastic. But it really does showcase then when people don't use it. The adaptive triggers in Astrobot as well use sensibly to kind of communicate. I don't know, like the torsion of a bow or the hydraulic effect of a spring. It even uses a speaker on the controller to good effect. And it just gives the whole game a real presence in your hands to the point where it's just a great feeling platform game. Probably the best feeling platform game outside of Mario, really. Yeah. And it is genuinely enhanced by the, the tech advancements in the pad. But for all these positives, one of my main takeaways for this is that I, f- I feel we're going to be disappointed long-term that these pieces of tech are probably going to go the way of all the weird fu- functionality of the DS or, or the HD rumble of the Switch, which no one really uses now, or, or the gyro-heavy push of the original PS3 controller, or even like the 3D on the 3DS. And and I think it's it's even more uh, a problem for the, for the PS5 because we're at such a strange place in games development where big developers basically have to choose one of two paths. So they either sign a mega exclusivity deal and, and cozy up to work into kind of Sony or Microsoft house styles, or they go multi-platform because it, it's just too costly to develop these big ultra texture, ultra HD games. And if you go multi-platform, it's always going to be these weird hardware quirks that are just fucked straight in the bin. Additionally, the pandemic halting the manufacture of new consoles in the way it has means that I think at the moment, especially games just can't afford to launch on just one next gen machine unless they're being massively bankrolled by the hardware man- manufacturer themselves and that kind of has the follow-on uh, and, and the knock-on that six months after launch the only real exclusive for the ps5 is probably demon souls which in itself is a remaster of a ps3 game everything else of note is not only cross-platform mostly but but crucially i think cross-generation so you look at the games that have come out recently like you say mars morales Sackboy. Even Balan Wonderworld, if anyone cared, they're all on the PS4 as well. And yes, you are definitely going to have a better time playing it on the PlayStation 5 for any of those games. But I think you really have to consider at the moment, if you're the type of person excited to buy a new console, look at what it is you want to play and think, okay, if I have a PlayStation 4 Pro, for instance, is the experience I'm going to get that much different to kind of justify spending a lot of money on a new console at the moment? And that's kind of that's my honest opinion at the moment that I, I'm tremendously grateful, like I said, to have the opportunity to have a new machine that I will use lovingly every day. But for someone that maybe has not bought a PlayStation 5 yet and is kind of umming and ahhing what to do, do in the future, I really think to save you smashing your head against queues and scalpers and surprise drops at shops that you've got no chance of picking up and overpriced bundles and everything else, just wait a little bit. Because right now, especially if you already have something like a PS4 Pro, I, I don't think you're missing out as much as you might believe you are because a, a lot of games, yes, will run better, but you're still essentially able to have the same experience on, on the machine you might already have. I wouldn't even bet against games like Demon's Souls after a period of, of being kind of a console exclusive being backported because, you know, drop the frame rate to half, 
take out a few of the bells and whistles and it, it could run on the PS4. That's that's not an issue really. And I think if if it continues to be the way it's going at the moment where I can't imagine Sony are recouping the costs on hardware and, and kind of software development, it could be a quick way to kind of make a few extra pounds to, you know, just keep the keep the machine rolling along. I had intended to talk about some games, like I mentioned, but I've gone into way too much detail on all the all the ins and outs that no one really cares about apart from me. <laughs> so I will I will save some of that for next week. But very, very quickly, some of the games I have played and basically just a few word mini review. Spider-Man Remastered that I mentioned in passing, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I've, I've played Godfall, which is very shiny. That's probably the nicest thing I can say about it. Very shiny. <laughs> the the Tony Hawk's 1 and 2 paid upgrade is, is razor sharp. You know, it was a great game before. Now it's shinier. <laughs> I've really enjoyed playing the, you know, the sort of £10 upgrade yeah. version because it was only like 30 quid the game anyway. So, yeah. you know, I didn't didn't mind paying an extra tenner. But it's the first time I've, I've had to turn adaptive triggers off because the way it uses them for uh, reverts, just it, it just impedes you <laughs> just enough yeah. to, to, to stop that flow. Um, because you've got to be so like almost frame perfect with with some of those links and stuff like that. My only criticism about it, but it does look and run very, very nicely. Yeah. And then the last game I've played, I, I wouldn't have even considered playing this, but looking through my purchase library, it said, oh, there's a PS5 upgrade available for this game for free. It's, it's an old, like, a- Angry Birds-inspired game called King Oddball. Oh, yeah, I saw that you were playing that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite addictive. And what I've used it for is essentially is, in between other things, if I've finished with Spider-Man for the evening, I just play five minutes of King Oddball and then I go to bed. <laughs> but th- there's no reason for it to need a 4K version. Like, the, the original one was absolutely fine at standard <laughs> HD. But there we go. If they want to give it to me, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> so, yeah, deep breath. I'll, I'll talk far more positively about all the games I have played next week. But for now, yeah, really enjoying the console, but it does definitely have its caveats at the moment for someone that might be considering whether or not they want to put the money into something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. I mean, it's something my uh, my next door neighbour, John, he, uh, he, he's been sort of wanting one, but also saying... I'm only going to use it to play the games that I've already got. Yeah, yeah. You know, and th- the only reason I started really, really wanting one was to play Demon Souls, yeah. which is actually the get the game I've played least of <laughs> any of the games on my on my PS5 at the moment, just because I um I haven't sort of had the the time to sort of dedicate to sort of good big sessions with it. But yeah, I I am um, I think that the the loading times is the biggest difference. Yeah, and and. Yeah. You know how we've said before about how, because of the portability of the Switch, if there's a version of a game on the Switch and on the PS4, then we've always opted to go for the Switch version just because it's more convenient and you're going to give it more playtime. This is the first time uh, where I've thought when games have been out and thinking, if there's a PS5 version... I'm going to get that so I don't have to worry about load times. Yeah, I I completely agree. And that is a really, really big thing. I mean, for me, as a case in point, I'm still playing The Outer Worlds. I'm very close to the end of the story now on the Switch. And playing that the other day after I'd played so much Spider-Man, which really is instantaneous. Everything you do is instant. There is basically no loading in that game. Extraordinary. But, you know, certain missions in The Outer Worlds, I would load the game, which can take almost two minutes from turning the console on uh, if if you don't have (laughs) it open. And then I'll fast travel to somewhere, which will take another 45 seconds to load that area. I'll pick up the thing I need and then fast travel back somewhere else. So I've essentially played 30 seconds of game for about five minutes of loading. And 
you know, if I play Spider-Man for three hours, I won't see five minutes of loading in that three hours. <laughs> like, like it's, no, it's exactly. an insane difference. Yeah, it really, really is. Speaking of the other worlds, actually, I was, I was hoping to get some playtime on that in the last couple of weeks, but I've been out... Uh, I've been out filming in the real world again. Real world? Just the social energy it took. I sort of didn't anticipate it. And I basically would end up, I'd be sort of leaving about eight o'clock, half eight in the morning. I'd be getting back about six o'clock, half six. And usually by half seven, I'd be asleep because I was just so exhausted. So my gaming activity has actually been quite slight. And I, I mean, I'm sure you can probably expect that it's been mostly con- confined to the Binding of Isaac. Binding of Isaac. When I spoke to you in the last week or so, Minty, I, I think I said, said All right, I- I'm-, I'm done with it now. I was I was desperately trying to do Boss Rush and Mega Satan with the Lost, mm. uh, and it was just getting really miserable. I couldn't finish the last few challenges. I wasn't enjoying greedier mode. I was like, you know what? I think I've, I've come to the end of my playtime with it. And in that week, I uh, I-, I-, I carried on. And I did Boss Rush and Mega Satan with The Lost on hard. I've done, I think, about five or six characters on greedier mode. And this morning, I spent my bank holiday morning finally beating the last three challenges, which were The Guardian, which is... I mean, these three challenges are horrible and they are (laughs) not fun. So The Guardian uh, is where you are invincible. All you have is... It's basically like a big sword that does contact damage. So you can't be hurt. You can only attack things by chopping them down with your sword or running into things. But you also have the scapegoat item, which basically has, it's like a little dummy version of Isaac that wanders around on its own and will draw enemy aggro. But if that guy gets hurt, then you take damage. So you've basically got to guard this guy who you don't have control over. And it's it's just, it's horrible because you don't have, (laughs) there's so many rooms that will just totally fuck you. You know, totally out of your control. And it's horrible, but I I did manage to to do that challenge. Then there was brains, which is a horrible challenge where (laughs) all you have is Bob's brain. You have three Bob's brains to attack with. You can't fire tears. So you've just got to send these really inaccurate, hulking great bombs around it's just so easy to accidentally kill yourself and blow up and do damage like that. And you've got to go a long, long way. You've got to go all the way through and beat Blue Baby in the chest. But I managed to do that. And the other challenge was ultra hard, which is, uh, oh, it's it's awful. It's horrible. <laughs> so you always are inflicted with the Curse of Labyrinth. So the floors are twice as big. You're always inflicted with Curse of the Blind, so you can't see what any items are. You're always inflicted with Curse of the Lost, so you can't see your map. You're always inflicted with Curse of the Maze, so that uh, you'll sometimes randomly teleport between rooms, and the room's contents will teleport around the map as well. So you've got just... You really just struggle to know where you are at any point. Then all of the enemies that have champion forms, so the tinted enemies that will do more damage or have different attacks, if they have a champion form, they will be a champion, <laughs> including the bosses, which most of the most of the boss rooms will have two bosses in because that's like a champion boss room. And so, yeah, and you've got to do that. Oh, and one more thing. There are no hearts dropped for you at all. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. No red hearts, no soul hearts. And you've got to beat Mega Satan. And you're just Isaac to start off with. Like, nothing special, just bog-sanded Isaac. You don't even have the D6. It is, yeah. And that must have taken me 
200 to 300 attempts maybe i mean most of those attempts barely lasted you know a couple of rooms because you'd sort of you'd start and if if you're lucky there'd be a treasure room right there you go in it might be something that will help you get to the first devil deal and then you know you go from there i got insanely close yesterday where i think on the first floor i got cricket's head and jacob's ladder so i had incredibly powerful electrified tears it was it was a breeze getting through everything all the way up and then and then i opened the four red chests outside the door to mega satan in the dark room and because it was curse of the blind i saw there were two items that appeared and i thought great guppy items no (laughs) picked up the first one guppy's collar fantastic picked up the second one what was it, Minty? Oh, was it Cursed Eye? It was Cursed Eye. Oh. And it means that any time I get hit, I'm teleported out of the room. <laughs> and because it teleported me out of the room into Curse of the Lost and Curse of the Maze in the dark room, I had no idea. And then I have to find my way back to Mega Satan before having another go. And because I couldn't do Mega Satan without getting hit once, it didn't matter that I was there with an amazing build and with loads of life, just slowly, slowly watching that trickle down until I died. I literally, I almost cried. I was so <laughs> gutted. I was, I, I was close to tears. I was so upset. But I had a fresh stab at it this morning and I managed to do it. So, well <laughs> so that's good. That's great. All the challenges are done. All the challenges are done i've done all of the endings on hard mode i've got you know half a dozen greedier modes to do and i still haven't even touched the keeper because he's a cunt mm-hmm. <laughs> outside of binding of isaac my copy of my physical copy of super blood hockey arrived from premium edition games oh fantastic we, we talked about in the uh, the special episode with jp a few weeks back and I've, I've had a really nice time playing that. It's a lot of fun. It's really funny. It's got great arcade action. Do you remember the game I spoke about called Behold the Kickmen? Yes. Which was that yeah. like, arcade football game that was made by people who didn't know what football was. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was funny, but it wasn't. it didn't really deliver on what I wanted. I feel that Super Blood Hockey is scratching that itch. It's great. It's really good fun. It's incredibly gory and silly and over the top. It's lovely to have the physical edition. It feels very special to, um, you know, to have met and chatted with JP and be able to, you know, support premium edition games like that. And you even do get a challenge card inside the box that if you manage to do that challenge and send a screenshot to premium edition games then they send you a prize uh and it's just it's just a really nice thing i'm i'm, I'm not going to say what it is because i'm going to leave that as a surprise for anybody who who wants to uh, pick up the uh, the game themselves but it's a really nice way of uh of kind of honoring the content of the game not just the the box you know it's it's like they as jp said in the episode you know he wants you want he wants people to play the games you know he wants people to enjoy them and uh yeah it's really really good so i think it's going to end up sitting in my switch for quite some time whilst i you know to play a few matches here and there and progress the career a little bit further Actually, on the note of the career i knew i was in for a good time because the career mode starts and you're just a, a just a, a unemployed ice hockey manager and uh, the opening scene has you uh, try to take over a, a team uh, but you can't stump up the money so you donate a kidney <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's it's very silly and very funny. I, I I do really recommend it, and I'd recommend if you can pick up the physical edition, do that as well because it's really nice box, and it will support premium edition games as well. One other game that I have played a little bit of, it's another game. I I, so I was I was getting a bit sort of like I was looking for something else to distract me, and I I, I did do this thing that I always do, which is 
buy about six games and don't play them. Um, <laughs> yes, so, yes, I, I do that too. I know that feeling. I have played. I played the first hour of uh, Disco Elysium on the PC, okay. which I'm really, really enjoying. It's it's quite something, and I'm not going to talk about that now. <laughs> but I did I had a little trawl through uh, games that I bought on the eShop on the on the Switch. Thought, oh, you know, I'll find something else. On, uh, and I, I've been playing a game called Serial Cleaner. You basically play a crime scene cleaner, but not for the police, for like an illegal crime scene cleaner. So if like a gang has gone and murdered some some people and left some evidence lying around, they'll get in touch with you and you'll have to go and clean up the scene uh, and avoid being seen by the police. That's it. It's um, it's it's really really good. It's it's a stealth game. You know, you've basically you got to get in. You've got to sort of get the evidence get the bodies, put them in the back of your car. Then you've got to get your mop out and mop up the pools of blood or while sort of, you know, avoiding uh, detection by the policeman sort of investigating the scene. It's got a great art style. It's really satisfying to play. And between that and Super Blood Hockey, I've, I've seen a lot of things. <laughs> I've seen a lot of things on the Switch this week. <laughs> a lot of things. But I'm really looking forward to playing more of Disco Elysium in the next week, hopefully getting a chance to get back to the Outer Worlds as well and uh, play a bit more of that. And now that I've done these challenges on the Bind of Isaac, I might put it down, but also might not. I'm still I'm doing daily runs still. It's just it's the game that keeps on giving. You know you're not going to. No, I know. I mean, I, know. I, th- I think you're you're in far too deep now <laughs> because of the difficulty of of some of the challenges in that game. Mm. Once you reach a certain threshold of completion, I don't think you can then stop <laughs> Be- because you you've invested so much to get to the point you have. That it's kind of like that that last few percent of, of content, you it's like the game owes it to you, <laughs> and, and, and I think is, yeah. you probably feel like you you owe it to yourself as well because you've you've persevered yeah. through these really torrid challenges and and proven yourself to be a true platinum god <laughs> that you you need to you need to do it. I, I want to see that complete save yeah. file. I, I want to see it in my you know this is my third save file on an Isaac game, and I've, I've obviously I've never hundred percented it, and I, I don't I've I've never sort of thought to myself that I'm going to you know because it is so absurd. But one of the nice things about when you start ticking things off is. Because often, like, when you load up the game, there's a million things you can do. You'd be like, oh, I could do a normal run, I could do a hard run, I could do a greed run, a greedy run with any of these characters to do one of the challenges, do the daily run, blah, 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 blah. But the more you do, then the more sort of focused your your attention becomes. And, and I really like that. I kind of wanted to get to the point where all I was doing is focusing on the keeper as a character yeah. so that, you know, I could I could finally sort of break the back of him. And, and I mean that literally because I'd like to see him dead. <laughs> Let's be honest, it's going to continue. Minty, how about you? Have you continued with uh, with your binding of Isaac? And also, how, how are you getting on with Bravely Default? You know me so well. I do. Because that's all I've played. <laughs> like you said, I am becoming slightly more focused in what I do each time I load up an Isaac run. I'm shelving greedy mode at the moment because if I fill out the rest of the post-it with each character... That's where all the uh, all the clutch unlocks are. Just the real run winning items. Um, I unlocked sacrificial dagger. Oh yeah, that's a big one. Which yeah, oh it's a huge one. It's a huge one. <laughs> and also, uh, I have been watching uh, some YouTubers and Twitch people uh, playing through Repentance, and I have to say, Aww. I am very excited for Q three when it's going to be coming mm. out on consoles. But I will say this: if they can get it running on Switch. I will eat my fucking hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're carrying on with Bravely Default 2. So I thought I'd completed the game 
twice now. <laughs> I thought, oh, I've beaten the final boss. That's good. And then we realized that uh, this particular plan that the party was uh, was going through to defeat and seal away the ancient evil would have terrible ramifications for one member of your party. And instead of giving you the option to try and fix that, maybe try and do something different, just rolls the credits. And you're just left thinking, well, I hope that's not the end of the game because now that's really shit and now I'm angry. (laughs) Um, And thankfully, you do get another chapter after you've beaten that first final boss. And then it does exactly the same thing again with the second final boss (laughs) with a completely different character. So now I'm not really playing the story mode of the game at all. I'm just grinding up all of my characters. I'm trying to get them to the maximum level with all 23, 24 jobs. It's not that hard to do. It's just a little bit repetitive. But I think once I once I have everybody sort of maxed out, then I'll be able to, to just really move forward and give everything the thorough spanking it deserves. <laughs> oh, a, t- a thorough paddling. Just steamroll the whole thing. Yeah. It's not just fighting over and over and over. I mean, it, it, it is that. It's not, it's, it's, it is time-consuming, but it, it, it is a little bit interesting because every job is so different and has so many great synergies with, um, with your sub-jobs. So not only are you uh, trying to just level up as quickly as you can, but each character has a different thing that they excel in. So trying to work that out and trying to find a little little fun synergies that maybe um, you hadn't thought of before. It does make fighting just really, really fun and so fresh and so new every single time you uh, switch jobs. So it's a grind, but it's it's not a slog. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Mm. So it's time to move on to the main dinner of this episode, which is Chris's seventh favourite video game of all time. Seven. I can't wait to find out what it is. So please tell me. Now, I don't know what to say about today's game that the two of you didn't already say when it came up on both of your lists about a year or so ago. And I also don't know what to say about today's game that the three of us didn't cover when we replayed it collectively towards the end of last year. What? This is a game that has informed so much of the industry since its release. The absolute poster child oh. for the console that it would define a, a genre founding <laughs> and codifying thing that's still cribbed from by, by Indian AAA developers alike. A game whose spectre watches over every single 3D platformer released over the last few decades. <laughs> either nodding its head approvingly when developers get it right or shaking its head in frustration when a new release somehow fails to reach the heights that it personally set back in 1996. <laughs> what game is it, boys? Uh, Croc, Legend of the Gobos. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Super Mario 64. Of course it is. When you brought up Doom as your 10th favourite game, Minty, you expressed a sort of relief when realising through a modern lens that its position on your list was vindicated by how good it still felt to play in 2021. Yep. And when making this list, Mario 64 was always in the top 10 for me. There was a bit of jostling here and there, but it never left the upper echelons. And yet, as we were climbing up the list, as we did 50s and 40s and 30s and 20s and teens, and I was replaying these games, I started to think like, oh, I've got this got this niggling doubt. Like the last time I beat this game 100% when I wrote this list was at the launch of the DS. And since then, I'd only really revisited it for a few stars here and there when I got like new emulation setups. 
And I, I was really worried that maybe, you know, a position in what is the, the third season of this show in the top 10, is, is that too high? But <laughs> no, of course it fucking isn't. Like, <laughs> playing the game to completion through the really lazy port in the 3D All-Stars collection or playing the first few worlds in 4K via the PC decompilation a few months back or even playing it via Homebrew as the stereoscopic ports to 3DS. This is this is one of the best platform games ever made. It really is. <laughs> the the Nintendo 64 was the first home console that was mine and you know the Master System before it and the Mega Drive and the Sega Saturn they were shared things in our household even if I played them 100 times more than my brother. The N64 was the first console that I bought with my own money even if it was years after its release and and because of that it always had this special place because it you know, in the same way, Jonathan, you said about when you got your Game Boy, that wasn't a shared thing anymore. It was it was your console. Mm. The N64 felt like that for me. And I remember taking my stash of birthday cash to Cash Generator on Northdown Road in Cliftonville. Ooh. And and I think the console ran me about 60 quid. Like, I, I honestly don't remember completely. And whatever it cost, it was small potatoes <laughs> for how much joy I would get out of the machine. And, you know, regardless of whether my hazy recollection of how many crumpled 20s I handed over to a glorified <laughs> pawn shop, either way, it, it was my machine, my games, and, and I, I loved it. Now, not that it mattered to me at the time, because I entered the ecosystem for the console a couple of years late, but the console launched with two games. The N64 came out with two games, Pilot Wing 64 and Super Mario 64. And across its lifespan, the N64 would host a lot of really good games. Like from my top 100 alone, we've had Blast Core, Diddy Kong Racing, GoldenEye, F-Zero X. But I don't think that many people would argue that Mario 64 may have been the best, or at the very least, the most important game on the machine. Even as the console was sunset, like years on, it was still this towering achievement. Now, coming from Sega consoles, I'd grown up primarily with punchy arcade experiences, the type of game that you'd play, get as far as you could, then restart on your next session. Some of this was down to the games themselves, and some of this was down to the fact that I didn't realise the Sega Saturn had internal memory for the first few years of owning it. But regardless, Mario 64 was something very different because it was a game that you could dip in and out of. You, you could play a few stars here, a few stars there. It was something that you could play alongside other titles if you wanted, something that would save your progress nicely and then invite you back to carry on in whenever you fancied. And because the game itself is essentially a non-linear setup, this approach could also be taken for a single play session. So you could whack the machine on, you could mop up maybe the 100 coin star in Bob on Battlefield. You could then force yourself to go and find the red coins in Cool Cool Mountain. You could jump to another stage and climb to the roof of Big Boo's Haunt. The game is gated, that it does have doors you need certain stars to pass, but not by very much. And a few hours into the game, you've basically got access to everything. And... At that stage, the route you take to gun for the 70 stars needed to take on the final Bowser fight is entirely up to you, just your choice. You know, you might want to rinse the early, easier stages for all their stars or take a smattering from all 15 worlds. It, it really was just on a platter for you to do with it whatever you wanted. I really love that. And, and outside of Super Mario 64, the N64 represented a kind of wider realisation in me that games were starting to change. Thing, things were happening in the industry. And I have a really hazy memory of trying to articulate to my brother when I was choosing what to play on the console one day that games aren't done when you get to the end. <laughs> because, you know, for all these N64 games, like Blast Core, the game just unfolded again and again like a nesting doll. Every time you beat a challenge, three more opened up. So every time you did something, every time you got a check mark, there was something else to do. 
Diddy Kong Racing was a really simple karting game when you looked at the box. But to actually play it, winning a race was only the start of mastering the game when there were collectibles to find or, or tokens that you needed to grab alongside coming in first place. GoldenEye had three distinct difficulty modes that changed each stage's completion requirements entirely and then asked you to become essentially like a speedrunning lord to unlock extra cheats to mix up your time with the game further. And then in Mario 64, the start of all this for me, you know, 70 stars may have earned you the credits, but then there were 50 more of them to grab if you were still enjoying the game. And everyone still enjoyed the game <laughs> like i still enjoyed the game but but everyone did like as a child with the loose analog stick of my second hand n64 as a teen willfully persevering with the ds's touchscreen thumb nub and and as a man in his 30s grinding through the game to 100 completion one more time on the switch the core feeling of mario 64 is just one of incredible freedom and movement and external to any of the tasks the game asks you to complete the act of just cutting about the castle grounds or leaping and tumbling around any of the game's varied worlds it just feels so good and so natural i mentioned this a few months ago but i do think it's worth repeating that there was no blueprint for nintendo to follow when developing the 3d platformer and that its contemporaries you know the games created in an effort to solve this same problem of moving from 2d to 3d play spaces were crash bandicoot and Bubsy 3D. <laughs> and it's it's fascinating to me as someone who's watched games as a medium develop over the years that there there was no parallel evolution here. <laughs> you know, quite often you see things happen in games and then it pop up in another game that was developed alongside it, but still in isolation. And you and you sort of feel like, oh, it's interesting how they got to the same point. These three games were not alike. And, you know, Crash is a, a 3D game aesthetically, but mechanically it's still essentially based on fixed planes of movement due to the PS1 pad not having an analog stick when it first came out. Yeah, uh, Bubsy basically uses what we know as, as tank controls to navigate genuinely 3D open spaces, but in turn just feels execrable to play. <laughs> just so unpleasant. <laughs> and, and yet Nintendo sat in their Kyoto HQ, built a controller to make 3D work, and then built a game to justify the controller. <laughs> like there's, there's such an amazing symbiosis between the hardware and the software that it's, it's quite stunning. Like if you go on YouTube now for all the stupid Generation Z react to the N64 controller videos, <laughs> like, you know, this is a pad like the GameCube's after it that was entirely built around function. And it doesn't matter if you hold it in a stupid way because it feels like the correct way and it feels comfortable to use. I, I sort of imagine hypothetically going back in time and being given both a PlayStation 1 and an N64 on the same day on 1996 here you go, boys. Two brand new machines. The Sony PlayStation 1 with a shiny black disc copy of Crash Bandicoot and the N64 with a colourful Super Mario 64 cartridge. You might boot up the PlayStation 1 first and think you're having a nice time. Oh, the little character runs into the screen. I can jump <laughs> on the heads of enemies like I did on the Mega Drive or the SNES. I can fall into pits because I'm not used to depth perception in 3D. <laughs> but as soon as you boot up the N64 with Mario 64 later that same day, the only thing you're going to be saying is, can I put the PlayStation 1 in the skip, please? <laughs> because it's just not comparable. It's just not comparable. Like, to play Mario 64 now, it's still mind-blowing that, okay, you walk at the speed of your choosing by applying pressure to the analog stick. We're, we're used to that now, but at the time, this was, this was completely new. You use momentum to control your jumps or double jumps or triple jumps. You can backflip because you can. <laughs> you can wall jump off pretty much any surface. You can punch or dive or spin, crawl, long jump. 
You can do a little weird breakdancing move that has no purpose, but looks cool and probably would have been harder to take out than leave in at the time. <laughs> it's it's 2021 and some games still don't have the sort of balletic range of movement the Mario 64 offered. And, and that game did it with just an analog stick, a jump and a crouch button. You know, you control everything in Mario 64 using essentially movement and two buttons. And the more you play, the more you explore your options and the more the movement just expands organically. It's, it's such a joyous thing. And Nintendo knew that it was going to feel that good because every stage is built around the knowledge that as you return each time for more stars, you're going to learn a bit more about the stage topography and you're going to you know learn your way around these little spaces. But also you're going to learn the nuances of Mario's moveset. And it's interesting, like if, if someone plays this game for the first time, you jump into Bob on Battlefield as the first stage, they'll probably use the analog stick at full tilt and just use single tap hops to climb to the summit and, and beat King Bob on. But by the time you've returned to, to attempt to race against Cooper the Quick or collect 100 coins, you might be long jumping to cut corners, you might be back flipping up lifts, you might be using the cannon and a wing cap to skip whole sections of the stage, wall kicking off bits of cliff to speed up your ascent. None of this stuff is taught formally. It's just embedded in the game's challenge. And it's it's another wonderful example that kind of how I mentioned with, with WarioWare the other week that Nintendo just trusted their players to enjoy and learn through play. I think genuinely Mario 64 is, is one of the greatest games objectively of all time. And it is undeniably one of the most important games of all time. And for me, subjectively, it is my seventh favorite game of all time. And it's R3 Sense approved because of course it is. Yeah, what a yeah game. absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, we have talked about it to death. <laughs> this was the thing. It's like trying to write down something new or, or just to get across the thoughts of why it's so high. We've probably covered this game for several hours of talking collectively. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Well, there we have it. That was Chris's seventh favourite video game of all time. And, I mean, it's he, of course. It was Super Mario 64. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on social media. Subscribe to it if you haven't already. Tell a friend. You can reach out to us as well on our various social media platforms, facebook.com slash r3cents. Chat to us there about the games that you're playing. Ask us questions that you might like us to answer in a future episode. Tell us what your top 10 favourite video games of all time are. Also, check out our videos over on our YouTube channel. Search for r3cents on YouTube. Also, please do follow us on Instagram at O3C Podcast, and you can also find us at O3C Podcast on Twitch and TikTok as well. TikTok. You can also take us to task individually on our opinions and our thoughts. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I live at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I reside at Clement underscore Boo. <laughs> and please do join us next week when Minty will be telling us all about his seventh favourite JRPG of all time. <laughs> yeah, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs>
Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network.